Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. I want to welcome you to uh, the first week of a brand new series uh, that we're calling Why Church Matters. Um, In this series, uh, in all honesty, is an attempt to uh, speak, uh, attempt to speak into the reality that many people uh, are choosing to leave the church. And I know we're starting off heavy here, but uh, that's the reality, right? Uh, and here's the thing. I, I recognize that probably every generation talks about how people are leaving the church. Uh, but this season uh, in, in life and in culture feels just particularly and uniquely kind of unveiling for the church. Uh, and if, if for no other reason, uh, now when folks leave the church, uh, they often uh, can start a podcast and start talking about all the reasons why they've done so, and many have chosen to do just that. Uh, and what they have found is that they're not alone. Uh, in fact, the movement of, of kind of leaving the, the church, uh, giving up on faith altogether is now so prevalent that, uh, that we've created even new language to articulate the experience. Uh, the term exvangelical is meant to describe someone who grew up in the evangelical church and has come to then reject or deny many of the tenets of that movement. Uh, even even uh, new language like faith deconstruction. Faith deconstruction is a term that's popularized, been popularized to describe the experience of critiquing the faith of your youth uh, and then realizing that the answers aren't always as easy as you once were told. And there are now spaces on social media and podcasts dedicated to exploring this movement away from church and even uh, away from faith altogether. Uh, and so this, uh, this series is really near and dear to my heart. Because uh, as, as I try to just kind of keep, uh, uh, keep a beat on what's happening in the world and in culture and then try to in, use that as informed decisions of how to speak, uh, it began, it kind of drew up in me a lot of my own questions about why do I go to church? Um, or perhaps more appropriate for someone in my vocation is why do I continue to give my life to the church? Uh, and so the answer is not actually is not as simple as you might uh, as it might first appear. And so my goal in this series is to give a robust exploration of why church continues to matter despite the imperfect nature of the church and despite the trouble that the church has faced. Um, and, and as I mentioned, this, this series is near and dear to my heart. I have thought, uh, prayed, reflected, um, researched uh, this series um, probably more than uh, ones in recent memory uh, because this is, I think, something that we need to be talking about uh, in the church. Um, but let me start with some opening comments, uh, and I don't know if they're disclaimers, or I don't know what exactly these are, but I felt like I need to, I need to set the ground somewhere as we launch into this series. Uh, here's the first one. Uh, I want to openly recognize the irony <laughs> of a guy who has devoted his life and draws his paycheck from the church, talking to a group of churchgoers who are attending on a Sunday morning about why church matters, Right? <laughs> So like, let's just kind of openly like, say this is a little bit ironic, right? Uh, so that's the first thing. Um, but I believe that this question is one that probably some of you may be facing, right? Uh, that some of you may be a season in your life where you're just kind of barely hanging on by a thread and you're wondering why do I continue to show up? Um, and, and so despite kind of the irony 
uh, I, want, I feel like it's still important and something we need to talk about. The second thing I wanna mention uh, is this series is not a promotion, a trick, or a gimmick for increased church attendance. <laughs> We're not doing a, a series on why church matters so that we can get more people here. Uh, in fact, I believe there, there may be times and probably are times in life when it may be best to step away from a church or the church for a season in order to heal. Uh, that there are times where the hurt is so fresh uh, and it is so raw that sometimes healing for the soul needs to happen uh, in community with people, but maybe outside of a Sunday morning church service. You with me? So I, I want to kind of recognize that. Uh, in other words, I've heard stories of people that have experienced incredible pain in the church, and sometimes the best thing you can do for your soul is just not show up for a little while. Uh, you'll, you'll hear throughout the series, I don't think that's a good permanent solution, um, but I recognize that reality. I also want to recognize the reality that some people have been given such an ugly picture of who God is that the most honest thing they can do is refuse to worship that God, <laughs> okay? Like sometimes we grow up in Christian circles, but we're handed this picture of who God is, and it's ugly, right? That, that God is retributive, he's angry, this kind of old man in the sky view of God, and so the most honest thing people can sometimes do is refuse to, to show up to worship that God. And so... Uh, and it may take time for a more beautiful understanding of who God is to come. So I don't want you to hear this series as a gimmick to try to get you to come to church more often. This series is my honest dealing uh, with an honest question that I think a lot of people are facing in this season. And then number three, um, if this series does not resonate with you personally, right? You're like, uh, why are we asking these questions? I've never heard of these movements. Uh, I'm perfectly happy with how church is and, and like this, this just doesn't resonate at all. Um, I can almost guarantee that there is a Christian in your life dealing with this question uh, of whether I should just keep showing up. Um, and, and so they may be dealing, and, and here's the thing, is they may be dealing with that question in secret because they don't have like safe places uh, to talk about it or to bring it up. And so I would want to say this series is hopefully uh, just a way to kind of start a conversation. Or if you've been scared uh, and, and you've kind of been living in isolation, that hopefully will give you the courage to begin talking about some of these things. Um, and, and, we, and I thought, what an appropriate time to begin this series than Pentecost Sunday, right? What a, what a great Sunday to start talking about the church is when the church began at Pentecost, uh, and so we, we heard uh, the passage that I want to preach from, Acts chapter 2, the first eight verses. Um, and then I want to kind of continue on, and we're going to explore this in more depth and detail. Uh, but I also want to read Acts chapter 2. So what we have is, is kind of the Pentecost story, uh, this beautiful story uh, uh, that we heard in multiple languages, which, which I just love. I just think that's one of the most significant things we do. And, and we heard this story, and it's this, this, it's this kind of weird story. <laughs> And it's this um, like exciting story. Uh, but then you get to Acts chapter 2, and it says this. Acts chapter 2, uh, be beginning with verse 42, it says, They, which implies a community, right? They, this group of people. Uh, this group of people, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship 
to the breaking of bread and to prayer, and everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And all believers were together and they had everything in common, selling their possessions and their goods they gave to anyone who had any need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts and praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Um, I I love the Pentecost story. I love Pentecost Sunday. Uh, It's exciting. It's got this kind of weird edge to it where you have uh, a room that gets really windy, right? And and then there's tongues of fire that come and rest on heads and there's different languages. And it's like, this is like great Hollywood material, right? Uh, and, and then Peter gets up and addresses the crowd. And this is kind of between what Acts chapter one, which we read in Acts chapter two. But in between that time, the apostle Peter stands up, he addresses the crowd and he preaches what many scholars to consider to be the very first sermon where he proclaims Jesus as Lord and Messiah. That he proclaims Jesus as the one who was put to death but raised to life. And when the crowd hears this amazing news of Jesus the Messiah, they, they, they turn to each other and they say, what are we to do in light of all of this? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. Now all of this is recorded in a book known as the Acts of the Apostles. But it could just as easily and perhaps more properly be called the Acts of the Spirit, <laughs> right? That as you read, the, as you read the, the, the book of Acts, you recognize that it's not so much the apostles who are the acting agents, but, but it's rather the Spirit of God who is the acting agent, where he's moving and he's doing all of this, these kind, the, he's doing all kinds of things, and the very first thing that he does, the very first act of the Spirit is to form a community. So after the Spirit of God is poured out among people, the very first movement of the Spirit of God is to draw together a community. And this is so significant because it points us to the reality that when God draws us to himself, he also draws us to one another. You with me? That when God draws us and invites us to himself, he also draws us into a community that is centered on him. That from the beginning, our life was never meant to be uh, separated from community or lived in isolation, but our life was meant to be lived with one another and our faith was meant to be a public practice. In other words, faith was never meant to be privatized. (laughs) which seems kind of foreign, right? In our, in our world and in our culture, we privatize our faith so much. But very, from the very beginning, it was never intended to be private. And here's the thing, this new community is now centered on the person of Jesus Christ and the confession that Jesus is Lord. And so what they do is, is they're saying, okay, this, here's this announcement, here's this confession, Jesus Christ is Lord, and a community now centers around that confession, and they begin to work out what this central confession might mean, and so they begin to pray together, they begin to share meals, they begin to share possessions, they take care of one another, they forgive each other, and they begin doing all of these things as a way of working out what they think it means to confess Jesus Christ. As Lord. Does that make sense? In other words, the confession of Jesus Christ as Lord is not just this something intellectual, 
but rather those very first communities that the Spirit drawn together began to say this sort of thing has implications that need to be worked out. And what the witness of Scripture is, this is what their life looked like. They cared for one another. They prayed. They shared meals. They shared possessions. They forgave one another. And guess what? It was beautiful and revolutionary and world-changing that these first communities centered on Christ literally changed the world and all of history. And here's the thing. They did it without a building or a sound system or leadership training (laughs) or Christian conferences, right? Uh, There were no conferences to attend. There were no denominational resources. And not that any of that is bad. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying that any of that is bad. The point I'm trying to make is that the church, if we're going to understand this why church matters, we need to begin with what is the church. And the church is the people the Spirit of God draws together that are centered on Jesus Christ and the confession that Jesus is Lord. with me? That's the church. The church is a group of people that the Spirit draws together, and it's a global community, people of all languages, right? Here's one thing, like all the time I'm thinking, what should we do better next year? Next year, when we hear different languages that are represented in our community, at the end of of each of those readings, I want to say, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. At the end of every one, right? Because then we've just heard the word of God spoken in a language that's not our own, and yet then we follow it with the confession that this, even this, that I don't necessarily understand, is the word of God for the people of God. It opens me up to the reality that the people of God extends beyond my own language, my own geography, my own skin color. Are you with me? It kind of expands our view of who God is and what God is doing in the world. And so it's this, the church is this global community that is drawn together around the Spirit and centered on the person of Jesus Christ and the confession that He is Lord. That's the church. And you can have that without a building. You can have that without in-ear monitors on your sound system, right? You can have all of that without all of these things that we've kind of surrounded ourselves with. In fact, I, I saw something this morning that made me think of this. If, if one of those original apostles were to come and look at church as we kind of do it today, I imagine that they would be absolutely dumbfounded at the level and amount of technology that they had never even dreamed possible. But I hope that the practice of the sacraments would be familiar. Oh, come on. That's better than you're responding. <laughs> right? It's kind, of like, it's kind of like if we then, if for the church moving forward, there'll probably be a day when the church uses technology that right now we can't even dream of. But if we were to show up, would they be practicing baptism and communion and confession and forgiveness and these things that we would say, oh yeah, that's it. That makes sense. You with me? All right, so, th- so that kind of helps us understand what is this church and, and actually, as a preview, as a preview to Pentecost in Acts chapter 1, God promises that he will use the spirit-formed community to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the world. He says, hold on tight, stay where you're at, I'm going to send my spirit, I'm going to send a helper to you, and then you will be my witnesses in Samaria and Judea and to the very ends of the earth. 
And so God's original plan for this spirit-formed community is that he would be, that we would be the witness, his witnesses to the very ends of the earth. And, and here's the thing. You've got to understand that right then and there, God is up to something brand new. God is up to something absolutely brand new. Because here's the thing. Up to this point, before God says, I'm going to... F- I'm going to send my spirit, I'm going to form this community, and this community will be my witnesses to the very ends of the earth. Before that, in order to be considered the people of God, you had to be in the tribe of Israel, the tribe, uh, the Hebrew tribe. You had to be a Hebrew, an Israelite. And so belonging to God's people was based on ethnicity, and then there was a sign or a symbol of that belonging Kind of makes us all a little bit uncomfortable, but let's talk about it. Circumcision, right? And so it had you had you had to have the right ethnicity, and then you had the marker of circumcision, and then you had to follow the Torah, the laws of these people. And so belonging to the people of God, the people of Israel, was based on ethnicity, circumcision, and Torah observance. And that's all that history knew up to this point. And then all of a sudden, God does something very, just absolutely mind-blowing and brand new. It says, I'm going to send my spirit, I'm going to form a community, and this community will be my witnesses to the very ends of the earth. And what you have is the birth of a church. And the church, this new community that God begins to build, centered around the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, is based on faith, baptism, and embodiment of the Jesus way. Okay, do you, you see what's happening here? The, 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 what God is doing when he forms the church is he's moving from an inherently closed system, right? That, that you can't help your ethnicity, right? And I'm sorry to say it, but not everybody can be circumcised. <laughs> okay, it's an inherently closed system. But with the formation of the church, it moves to this inherently open system. Faith, baptism, and adherence to the way of Jesus. And now it's this fundamental shift from a clo- something that's closed to something that's open. And it is beautiful. It is world-changing. It is revolutionary. Let me say this. The original spirit-formed communities were scandalous because of who they let in, not who they kept out. Oh, well, he's preaching now. Like, I'm just getting warmed up, right? It's like this whole week, I was like, I'm going to get so fired up, I'm going to try to preach this sermon sitting on a stool. And I decided not to even try. Like, I was like, there's no way I can do that, right? Uh, but, here, but I want you to hear this again. The original spirit-formed communities were scandalous because of who they let in, not who they kept out. And for many Christian leaders throughout history, Acts chapter 1 and 2 has been the model that we pull from, and for good reason. There is a lot to like here. And from those very first days, the Christian community was revolutionary. But here's the thing. There are many Christians today who are regular church attenders who look at Acts chapter 1 and 2, and it feels so unfamiliar. It feels nothing like what their experience is of church. 
Some have found the, play, the church to be a place of rejection rather than love. Brothers and sisters in Christ have betrayed rather than offered forgiveness. Some have experienced unthinkable pain of abuse from a person in a position of authority and trust. Others have discovered that instead of offering freedom, the church is only interested in trying to manipulate and control. And on and on and on the list could go of the grievances that people have against the church. I don't want to promote the wrong material here, but there's even a podcast called The Airing of Grief. A podcast dedicated to airing grievances against the church. So the question becomes, like, how did we get from world-changing, spirit-formed community to institutional structures that in many ways are corrupt? And then the key question, is it even worth trying to preserve? Is it even worth trying to stay involved? Well, to help I don't have easy answers, right? Some of you are like, oh, here comes the answer. (laughs) Uh, Sorry, I don't have it. I don't have the easy answer, but I do have some ideas and I have some thoughts, especially to help us get uh, a a grip on maybe how we got here, right? How you go from like world-changing, spirit-formed community to institutional structures that maybe don't do a great job. Uh, And to help us kind of get a handle on that and to understand what has happened and to help us, I think, learn like what we can do and where to go from here, uh, I want to introduce you to a thing called social movement theory. (laughs) This is going to be really fun, okay? Social movement theory. Uh, Also, I should say that I'm I'm deeply indebted to Brian McLaren uh, and his book, The Great Spiritual Migration, for introducing me to these ideas. But but here's here's social movement theory. Uh, Social movement theory is... um, some ideas or perspective on, on how we tend to behave as, as social beings. In other words, it's not just kind of what I'm doing, but what, what are we doing together and what is sort of the natural movement as we gather together, our, our, gather ourselves together socially. And, and the first step in this social movement theory is communities. In other words, our first experience of kind of social life together is usually in a very small community that we live in these communities just like the one that was formed after uh, Pentecost, that was formed by the Spirit after Pentecost. Um, We live in these communities, and that's what happened on Pentecost Sunday, is this new community was formed. And communities are usually made up of family members and people who share lives and by virtue of having, having shared virtues, shared common values, goals, shared beliefs, shared practices, and so you kind of live in these little communities. And, and the life of those first communities on Pentecost Sunday was centered on the person of Jesus Christ and the message of his kingdom. And as people in those communities embodied the way of Jesus, they attracted other people to their community, right? One of the things we need to recognize from the book of Acts is that the church, those first spirit-formed communities, were so attractive to people who were outside of those communities that people were finding their way in. They're like, how do I get to be a part of that, right? It's this amazing thing. In fact, Michael Goheen writes in his book, The Drama of Scripture, he says this, it is the life of the community as it embodies the powerful working of the Spirit that authenticates the truth of the good news. You hear that? 
It's like people will say, Jesus Christ is resurrected. You know, he is risen. He is risen indeed. And people are like, nah, I don't know about that. But then they see the group of people making that confession and the way that they live, and it authenticates the claim. Wow. Right? And so their lives shone like a light in the darkness. And the more people gathered because of the beautiful contrast between their life and the life of those given over to sin and evil. In fact, Acts says what we read this morning, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so we begin in communities. But here's the thing, is that the communities, uh, like when Acts says, and we didn't read this part, we read the part where it added to their number daily, but after Peter gives that first sermon, 3,000 people responded to the good news of Jesus Christ. To which I say, amen and oh no. As a pastor, that sounds like a logistical nightmare, right? It's like if tomorrow 3,000 people showed up to Emmaus Road, I'd be like, oh no, <laughs> like what is happening? It would be, there would be like so much to do, right? It's just like so many things to organize and you, like, because that's the thing, right? Communities must find a way to organize in order to sustain themselves. So what inevitably happens, according to social movement theory, is that those communities become institutions. And institutions often begin as a way of organizing and multiplying the purpose and the mission of the community. And so while the term institution carries a lot of baggage in our culture today, institutions, and I want you to hear me, institutions aren't necessarily bad. They help to organize and sustain communities. But we must also recognize that institutions are prone to corruption. In other words, the longer an institution exists, the more prone it is to corruption. That the structures that were initially set up to equip uh, and, and organize and help, help uh, share the, the, the message of the community, that structure itself often prevents the institution from nimble movement with the Spirit of God. And the longer you go, then the more and more concern is given to the grasping on of the past and what used to be. And so perhaps this is your experience in the church, right? Perhaps your experience is the church is you kind of look at it and you say, you know what, it's just so worried about grasping on to that which used to be. And it seems fairly disconnected to the nimble movement of the Spirit in our world. So that may be your experience of the church. And so here's what happens. When institutions fail us, Movements rise up. So communities form institutions. And then out of institutions, when, they, when the institutions fail us, movements rise up. So movements rise up, and they, what they do is they critique the institution. Now, I promise all of this is going somewhere, right? I'm starting to see a little bit of glazing. Uh, stick with me. I, like, I found this so compelling. Maybe, maybe I misread how interesting this would be to you. Uh, but... <laughs> Like, total side note here, I got some books at the library, uh, and, and my daughter uh, was just like, so, Dad, you're getting, like, more boring books? Um, and I said, well, how do you know they're boring? And she's like, well, I tried to read one one day, and I didn't last very long, you know? And it was like, I was like, well, I think it's interesting. Um, and then I said, which one did you read? And she told me, and I was like, oh, that one's boring. You know, like, <laughs> all right, so, so here's what happens, all right. When institutions fail us, movements rise up to critique the institution. 
Now, here, the movement exists not to replace the institution, but rather to articulate what has gone wrong and then propose a change that the institution needs to make in order to make it right. So movements rise up to critique the institution. But the trouble is, movements, when, when they gain momentum, are often met with opposition from the institution. Right? You've seen this happen? Most often, opposition comes from those within the institution who benefit from the status quo and who fear who fear the change that is being proposed. And oftentimes, they fear it because those in the institution, if the institution were to change, it would mean that their wealth or their well-being or their comfort or maybe their status within the institution would have to change. And so they resist it. They want to maintain the status quo because it puts their well-being, their comfort, their status, all kinds of things at risk. So, movements then have four options. Hang with me, hang with me. Movements have four options. Number one option for a movement is failure. It just fizzles and it dies. Number two is the movement is successful in convincing the institution to change, therefore its mission is completed and it's extinct, right? It did, the movement did what it was supposed to do. Third option is it is successful in convincing the institution to change, but then adopts a new set of proposals and the movement is reborn. Okay? You with me? You see the difference between two and three? One is successful, so the movement just ends. It did its job. Number number three is the movement is initially successful, but then adopts new critiques. It says, hey, since we're changing, we also need to do this. Right? And, And then the movement is reborn. Or number four is when the institution refuses the proposals of the movement, the movement becomes a competing institution. Welcome to the Protestant church (laughs) that is splintered in literally tens of thousands of directions. The fourth is the state of the church today. Many movements have arisen in the church And the Spirit of God continues to move throughout history. However, most often the institution has rejected the proposal of the movement, so the movement becomes a competing institution. And the result is tens of thousands of denominations, many of whom believe that they have the truest expression of Christianity. (laughs) I'm always a little bit surprised at the audacity of any denomination to say, out of a rich 2,000-plus-year history of of Christianity, we've got it right, (laughs) right? Including my own, like, and I would say that regardless of what tribe or or denomination I was in, I'd be like, no, I don't know if we've got it all right. Uh, Sometimes movements can be pretty audacious. Well, that's all very interesting, Pastor Andy, but what's the point? Here's the point. There is an undeniable tension between the failure of the institution of the church and God's plan for the gathered community. There's an undeniable tension between how well the institution has done throughout history and yet the God's plan and design for this thing called the church. I mention his name often, but author and pastor Brian Zond said this this week in, in kind of thinking about Pentecost. He said, 
the church has no golden age. In other words, there's always been something in the church that we just haven't got right. And yet at the very same time, there has always been beautiful expressions of faith and Christianity inside of the church. But there's never been a time where the church has, across the board, got it right. And so there is this undeniable tension that we must admit on the one hand that the church hasn't always done a good job. And sometimes, sometimes I, sometimes you have been sort of like hurt because of that, because of what the church hasn't done right, or, or the hurt that's there, or, or, or the abuse that's there, or the manipulation, or the control, or the yada, yada, yada. Sometimes we get the blunt end of that. And so the church has been responsible for some really terrible stuff. But I don't wonder if you've ever heard a pastor say that. But on the other hand, I am drawn to confess that the church matters because it is God's design to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. Amen? <laughs> At this point, I might beg for amens. <laughs> it's, it's like... The church is the mechanism for sharing the good news with the world. And, and man, I'll be the first to admit, it isn't perfect. But it is God's design. And so the goal and the difficulty is to allow what author Brian McLaren, after he does this whole thing about social movement theory, he comes to this. He says, what we need is a beautiful romance between institution and movement. For the church, we, what we need is a church that maybe exists as an institution, but is then willing to listen to the voices on the margins, to be sensitive to the movement of the Spirit, to seek the interest of others rather than the preservation of its ideals. And I said, I said last week, in the, as we finished up the beautiful gospel, I'm always suspicious of anyone when talking about the church is always trying to grasp onto the past. Right? Because we are to be a people of the future. We are to be progressing toward God's future that He has in store for us. It's not that church life is not a grasping on to what once was. Church life is a leaning into what will be. That's the truth. That's, that's what it is. And yet, we need sort of these organizing forces, right? That the institution itself is not all bad. I was talking with a friend this week and talking about some of this material and, and just trying to wrestle with it in conversation before presenting it to you all. And, and I said, I, I, I confess, I, I, don't, I don't really, I can't even conceptualize the church outside of its institutional expression. But yet I, I want to be committed to the reality that this institution can, can move with the Spirit of God can come to a place that where we're movement-oriented. Or, as Richard Rohr so puts so succinctly, the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. <laughs> I like that. The best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better.
Because there is value. There's value in the institution because it helps us answer questions that every movement must answer about its mobilizing structures. Questions like this. These are any movement that gains any kind of of credibility or, or momentum must answer questions like how will we make decisions? Who has authority? Of what kind and why? How will new and current leaders be developed? How will we maintain transparency? How will money, technology, and other resources be acquired, managed, and used? Like a movement has to answer those questions and the institution can help us answer those questions. But our challenge and our goal is to participate in the movement of God in this wildly imperfect thing called the church. And as much as those, because here's the thing, as much as we idealize those early spirit-formed communities, it did not take long for their shared life together to get real ugly, right? The church has never had a golden age. Sometimes people say, we just need to go back to the early church, which I understand the sentiment, but I'm like, but I also want to say, have you read Paul's letters (laughs) and the kind of stuff that he's dealing with as he writes letters to those churches? It's like, I'm kind of thankful that I'm, I'm not there, you know? Like, hey, our church is starting to look pretty good <laughs> in comparison, right? Uh, and, and so our, our, our goal and our challenge is to participate in the movement of God inside of this wildly imperfect thing called the church. And so the church has never been a perfect expression of God's intention, but it is God's design to proclaim the good news. And so here's, here's what I desire. I desire to be an organized church while maintaining a movement culture. And a movement, you see, isn't just about communicating a message. It is about creating a culture of values. For the church to take for the church, we are to take our cues about values, purpose and mission from Jesus Christ. And for a movement to be sustained, it must create a culture around the values of that movement, which is a fancy way of saying if the church, or since the church, is a spirit-formed community centered on the person of Jesus Christ and the confession that he is Lord, then we better get about the business of, of tangibly embodying the ways of Jesus and not just talk about them. This is why I can't sit on a stool. <laughs> Right? You with me? That, that for a movement to be sustained, it has to embody the, move, the values of the movement. And if we value the, that which is centered on Jesus Christ, our shared life together ought to start looking like the ways of Jesus Christ. And so, if a mo- in other words, if a movement proposes the ideas of justice and generosity, it must embody those virtues inside of the movement. If a, if a movement advocates for environmental responsibility, it must model it. If a movement advocates for nonviolence after the witness of Christ, it must be nonviolent. If it, and it is so easy for the church to lose a sense of movement and just become maintenance of an institution. In fact, the number one complaint of pastors, as I often hear it in articles and, and other thing else, everything else, is when I was a kid and I felt called by God, I felt called by God to participate and help lead a movement. But once I got into it, I ended up just organizing an institution, right? I, I, was, I was a revolutionary for Jesus and I ended up being the CEO of a church. <laughs> and it's like, I didn't want to do that. 
I don't want to deal with all of this. I just wanted to move with the Spirit of God. And I, there's a lot of me that, that uh, resonates with that. And so, what I'm trying to say is, I believe, and I'm convinced, that it is, it is possible to recapture the movement of God inside of the church. And it won't be easy. In fact, it'll be quite difficult. But because the church is God's plan and design to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the world, I think it's worth fighting for. Amen? But here's the thing. Here's something you've got to realize. The church isn't perfect, and there are no perfect churches. I will tell people in our covenant partner class right now, covenant partner classes are a bit like premarital counseling. People are just like, this is the best church. This place is awesome. And I'm like, you're right, but we will disappoint you. Uh, and you should know right up front, I say, uh, that this is not a perfect church. And they, they just, their eyes are all glazed over. They don't believe me, you know, <laughs> until they do. And all of them eventually do. Uh, but the church isn't perfect and there are no perfect churches but there are good churches. There are no perfect churches, but there are good churches. Amen? And so here's the thing. Find a church that you resonate with and participate in the shared life of that community because the church matters because it is God's design to announce the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. Well, we've got two more weeks, but that's all I want to say for today is for all the ugliness that's in the church, and I think there's plenty, there's also all kinds of beauty. And this is, this is God's plan, to share the good news with the world. And I don't, I don't know about Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. with chairs and pockets and connection cards and sound systems. I don't know if that's God's plan, but that's what we've got, and that's kind of what we're working with. What's that? That's <laughs> right, that's right. I, I mean, there's so, there's so much that I don't know the answer to about, about how God wants to do it, or what is the best, or what it will look like in the future, but the gathered people of God centered on the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is God's design to share his news with the world. And I want to participate in that. And I hope that you do too. Despite all the pain and the hurt, find a place that you resonate most with and plug in. And here's a guy who's committed his life to the church saying that to a bunch of churchgoers. So thank you for all the ways in which you guys are leaning into what it means to embody the kingdom of Christ in the world today. Thank you. We've done a lot today, and uh, so we're not gonna sing a final song. We knew we'd be doing a lot today, so we did have enough foresight to <laughs> uh, not sing that final song, but we do want to uh, gather around the Lord's table. We wanna uh, do prayers of the people, and I'll come up and give uh, a benediction along with some uh, instructions for our Pentecost picnic coming up. But let me say a word of prayer and then I'll lead us to the Lord's table together. 
Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us and for the ways in which you challenge us today. I pray, God, that, um, that you would lead us, that you would lead us into your truth, that you would lead us uh, by your spirit uh, into what it means to be your people in this time and in this place. Uh, for God, we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we want to do our best to work out all the implications of that. And so we need your leadership, we need your guidance. And uh, we confess today, today, God, on this Pentecost Sunday that, that life in the Spirit is central to our practices of faith. And so I pray, God, that by your Spirit you would meet us right here in this place and around this table. May we be unified through this confession that you are Lord, that Christ is Lord, and that you would um, meet us here and speak to our hearts, we pray. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.